Well, good morning, Hillcrest Baptist Church, um, and thank you for tuning in, uh, being with us online. We are coming to the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at the last two verses together, verses 9 and 10. Up to this point, Paul has shared his prayer of thankfulness for them, despite only being able to be with the church for a short amount of time. When he planted it, persecution drove him out, and persecution was left behind for the church. God's work that was begun in the church had not been snuffed out, and Paul was grateful for that. We're going to read together now. Let's read maybe from verse 6 in 1 Thessalonians 1 for a bit of context. Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we, meet, we need not say anything. Then verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we are keenly aware that we are missing out and not being able to gather as your church. We know that when we gather, there is power in the preached word. There is power in the working of the Holy Spirit. There is power in our encouragement of one another as we stir one another up to love and to good works. And so now, Lord, in this temporary loss that we have, we believe that all things are given under your sovereign hand. We ask that you would do your work despite our limitations, despite the distractions that are all around us right now. I pray that you would help your church wherever they are to be able to listen and hear and hear your voice as you speak. We ask in your holy name. Amen. In his book, Saved from What? The late R.C. Sproul begins by describing a most unusual encounter that he had with a man back in, 60, uh, in not 1669. R.C. Sproul's not that old. 1969 on campus at Temple University in Philadelphia. He was professor of theology at the time. It was time during the, the war in Vietnam, and so it was a time of upheaval, and life on the campus was anything but peaceful. So Sproul writes, One such volatile day, I sought an hour's solace and quietude from the cacophony in the faculty dining room. I stretched my lunch hour to, limit, to the limit in order to squeeze out every moment of peace I could enjoy. As the noon hour ended, I deposited my lunch tray in the bin and began my track across the plaza to my classroom. I was walking briskly to avoid being late. I was alone, minding my own business. Suddenly, apparently out of nowhere, a gentleman appeared in front of me, blocking my forward progress. He looked me in the eye and asked directly, Are you saved? I wasn't quite sure how to respond to the intrusion. 
I uttered in response the first words that came to my mind. Save from what? I think the man that stopped me that day was as surprised by my question as I had been by his. He began to stammer and stutter. Obviously, he wasn't quite sure how to respond. This serendipitous encounter left an impression on me. I experienced real ambivalence. On the one hand, I was delighted in my soul that someone cared enough about me, even though I was a stranger, to stop me and ask about my salvation. But it was clear that though this man had a zeal for salvation, he had little understanding of what salvation is. And then Sproul goes on to ask the question, but what about the church today? Do evangelical Christians have today any clearer understanding of the gospel, of what it means to be saved? What do you think? What would a survey of South African churches reveal? Perhaps a, a great confusion about the meaning of salvation? How would you answer the question, saved from what? Paul rejoiced over this church in Thessalonica. The gospel message was going out from them. They were preaching and their example was backing it up. And he mentions here in verse 9 a report that had come. A report about their conversion. The word Paul uses is their turning. Their, the biblical language of repentance. And he says that they turned in these verses to two things. Two actions. To serve in verse 9. And to wait in verse 10. And in their conversion, this church in Thessalonica becomes a perfect case study for us to remind us in these verses what it means to be saved. What it, does it mean when we ask the question, are you saved? Two verses, two points. Number one, we are saved and this church was being saved from false worship. Saved from false worship. There are a number of wonderful descriptions of what it means to be saved in the New Testament. We think of Ephesians chapter 2 that speaks of being dead in our trespasses and sins and then being made alive together with Christ. John chapter 3, Jesus speaks about being born again of the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 4, having once been blinded by the God of this age, God shines His light in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, we've been taken out of darkness into His marvelous light. Rebirth, death to life, blind but now seeing, darkness to light. Well, here in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1, we have another beautiful description of salvation put on display by this little church. John Stott says that this verse presents the fullest account of Christian conversion in the New Testament. Let's read verse 9 again. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, wherever the gospel went in the Roman Empire, there was this interesting and or this inherent understanding. Assimilation is not an option. Syncretism is not an option. Jesus is not just another God to add to the pantheon of gods that we have. 
Whenever you read Scripture and we see how it describes this God that we worship, you can't help but avoid the sense of exclusivity in His claims. Scripture speaks of other gods not merely as weaker alternatives, but as false or as dead. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4, Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. Psalm 115, 4-8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. My favorite description of idolatry in the Old Testament is in Isaiah 44 and 46. Isaiah here is speaking and it's satirical in its language. In 44, he's mocking. He says, when the lumberjack goes out into the forest and chops down a tree, half the tree he cuts up and uses it as firewood and on that fire he waits for his food to cook. And while he waits, he whittles with the other half an idol. And Isaiah asks, in essence, how does he know which end is firewood and which end is God? Crying out to that idol, deliver me, save me. In 46, Isaiah 46, he's speaking and mocking again. He says, you know, you have to carry your own gods. You have to set them up, prop them up on the table. You have to nail them down before you can cry out to them for salvation. If you have to carry your own God on your shoulders, there's a problem. Amy Carmichael told a story of a time in, in India. She was a missionary, a missionary to India, and she was living at a, in a mission home alongside other missionaries and alongside some local people, and every morning they would gather for prayer. And so one morning she rang a bell to gather everyone together, and the, the cook's son, who she thinks was probably just up to mischief, smiled at her and said, that bell is a god. Amy looked, and on the handle of this bell was the image of one of the local gods, Ram. She broke off the handle and threw it into the fire and then said to the boy sternly, Would a god let me do that? And then walked off. Now, I'm aware that behind the worship of false gods, there is often demonic power. But the Bible highlights the futility of putting your trust in false gods for life and for salvation. Jeremiah 12, verse 12 to 13, the prophet says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Scripture is clear, there is only one true and living God, and He does not share praise. He does not share glory. And so there is an exclusivity to Christ's claims over our lives that puts the church in a difficult position in the world. Jesus is not another prophet. He's not a demigod who comes with suggestions or a path to blessing. He is the great I am, the one who came revealing the one true and living God for whom we were created. 
Paul tells the Athenians, in him we live and move and have our very being. This all-consuming claim of Christ upon his followers led to trouble for the church in Thessalonica because it led in them to a radical break from their former life. If you stand in the city, apparently, of Thessalonica, if you look across the Aegean Sea, you can actually see a mere 80 kilometers away Mount Olympus, the traditional home of the gods. Worship uh, colored everything in their lives. It colored all of life. And so conversion in the city wasn't just a, a quiet change in terms of what they did on a Sunday morning. It was a radical departure from the economic and social customs of that city. It was a refusal to participate in the social events that was closely associated with the worship of these deities. Add to this the fact that Thessalonica had a special status in the Roman Empire as a Roman city. And so the imperial cult, the worship of Caesar, also formed, it was central to their life and their business practices. And the Christians rejected that as well. What did the people think in the city? Would the gods be angered and punish us because of this group of Christians? Would our favored Roman status be in jeopardy? They wouldn't have minded if Jesus was just added to the litany of other gods. But to deny the existence of all others, this would have brought anger and resentment Suspicion from the community would have brought hurt from family and friends. And this seems to be a common theme whenever the gospel reaches a new people, whenever it comes to a new place. I've been reading Don Cormack's book, Killing Fields, Living Fields, about the story of the birth of the church in Cambodia and the suffering of that church. The first chapter is about one of the, the first converts He's called Uncle Hass in the, in the book. A church was planted in his home. One day he heard a missionary preaching in the marketplace about the one true and living God, the creator of all things. He heard about our common sinful condition before this holy God, about our need for a savior and about Jesus Christ being our only hope. Uncle Hass, as he was listening, it says, felt agreement ringing in his heart. He went home that night and he shared everything he'd heard with his family and with his friends, whoever would listen. And he read the tracts that were given to him by the missionary. And something was changing irrevocably within him. Cormac writes about a strong conviction, he says, taking root within him. That finally in his hands he held answers to questions and internal longings he had been aware of for many years. And he knew that this new life germinating within him could in no way be kept hidden or contained. Even more awesome was the growing awareness that he was abandoning all he once held secure. And surrendering himself to this crucified and risen Lord Jesus to whom he was being inexorably and yet blithely drawn. In Hass's house, they had what, what they called the God Shelf. On the shelf were, were Buddhist and spirit paraphernalia. Immediately, Hass stripped it bare and took it outside and burned it all in the field. And from that day on, he would tell anybody who would listen about Jesus, about the living God. 
There is a sense of urgency that comes from the realization that for nearly 2,000 years, your people have been enslaved to false worship. Well, right from its birth, this church in Cambodia that broke with tradition, broke with local customs, customs that colored all of life, right from the beginning, they have faced the wrath of the greater community. When salvation comes to a people, whether in Thessalonica or in Cambodia, it comes with social, political, economic troubles for the people. The choice often is comfortable idolatry or a harassed service of this living God. And the only thing that sustains faithfulness in this situation is the conviction that knowing God is better than the benefit that idols can give. Conversion in our context often seems a lot more subtle, doesn't it? It shouldn't be any less radical. It shouldn't be any less radical. It is more subtle, I believe, perhaps because our idols are more subtle. We don't think of our everyday activities as worship, but we were created for worship and we worship every single day, whether we recognize it or not. Now, we may look down on those who bow down to physical idols, but the the prophet Ezekiel sums up our condition quite well in Ezekiel 14 when he says, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. Our idols are intangible but pervasive nevertheless. John Calvin spoke of the heart as an idol factory. Have you ever given thought to what idols your heart is prone to making? Listen to what Tim Keller writes. He practically wrote the book on modern idols, counterfeit gods. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol can be family or career or making money or achievement or critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. See, an idol is anything you feel that you must have in your life. It's something that you might sin to get or might sin if you don't have. An idol is something that takes God's place in your life in terms of providing your identity, your significance, your security. What is it that consumes your thoughts? What leads to anxiety in your life? What is it that crushes you with disappointment? Answer these questions and you might well have found an idol. Turning to the true and living God begins a lifelong process, a process that we ought to be conscious about where we hunt down our idols 
Through the Holy Spirit, we cut the tendrils of their roots within our hearts. And in the place of false worship, constantly we are seeking to be led by a holy God into something better, a better service. A service that flows from the heart that has seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A glory greater than anything idols can give. You see, the the pagan idolatry that marked the city of Thessalonica and marks still our idolatry today involves an exchange, not of joy and not of trust, but of manipulation and control. You appease your God by giving it what it demands. And in an exchange, you get what your soul craves most. And that's true whether your God is literal Aphrodite to whom you bow down, or whether it's beauty or sex or popularity and the opinion of men. We don't realize it, but we are slaves to the system of fear. Fear stokes everything we do in our idolatry. If I don't give my God the demanded sacrifice, I'll lose my security, my significance. I'll lose what gives me life itself. But service of the living God is not, is not a service of fear. It's a service given out of love for his promise to you and me today is I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not fail you. I will never stop loving you. No other God can say that. And in union with Christ, you have everything that your soul needs for significance, security, and for identity. The day that Uncle Hass was saved, he remembers quite clearly something that gripped him about the missionary that he met. This missionary, when he was finishing his gospel message, closed in prayer. And in this prayer, he took the stance they knew in that culture of one who who was meeting with a king. And yet when he spoke, he spoke with a smile on his face. He spoke with love. It was shocking to have. He spoke as if to a, a familiar friend. In Christ, we find everything that our souls need for peace and for joy, for rest and for real life. He is living water. He is the bread of life. And he says to each and every one of us today, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Are you at rest today in Christ alone? We are being saved from false worship, number one, but perhaps more fundamentally, number two, we are saved from future wrath. We are saved from wrath. Every single chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with this same focus, a hope in the second coming of Christ. It is the blessed hope of the church throughout the New Testament. Edmund Hybert, in his commentary, observes this, I believe, rightly. Much of modern Christendom has lost this expectant waiting for the return of Christ, much to its impoverishment. This expectancy is an essential part of the mature Christian life. And Paul writes to them partly to answer some of the questions that they have. There's some confusion. They're not sure what is it that happens to our loved ones who die before Christ comes. They have some questions about the the timing of the return. 
There might have been some false teaching going on in the church. But despite all of this, their hope was solid. It was set firmly as they waited eagerly. And Paul will strengthen this hope. Verse 10, they've turned to serve the living and true God in verse 9 and verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Firstly, here Paul gives them a reason to believe that Christ will make good on his promise. He calls him the son from heaven whom God raised from the dead. There is good reason that the core event in the preaching of the apostles, if you look throughout the book of Acts, is the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection had to precede the ascension from where Jesus, his ascension into heaven from where he would return. The resurrection is the down payment of Christ's promise to his disciples. His promise in John 14, 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus had foretold his death and he had promised his resurrection after three days. And if he could make good on that promise, if not even death could stop him then having ascended to the highest place of honor before their eyes, what possibly could stop his second promise? What could stop him from coming back for us? The resurrection of Christ casts its shadow over all of life, our past, our present, and our future. It casts its shadow over our past because the resurrection confirms what Christ, everything Christ said about himself is true. He proved it at the resurrection. It casts its shadow over our present because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is powerfully at work in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And it casts its shadow over our future because it guarantees the promise of His return. And when He comes, our own resurrection with Him. So Paul gives them this as a down payment again of the, the reason they should believe. But then he gives them the reason that the return of Christ is actually good news. Christ's return is not good news for everyone. Why could this church await it with joy and with hope? The Son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us, saves us from the wrath to come. When we talk about salvation, the very word implies the peril that faces every person born into this world. We need to understand, church, in no uncertain terms, that what we are saved from is the very wrath of God himself. There is a profound silence in the church around this truth. A few years back, I remember... A friend visiting whom we hadn't seen for a long time. And he came to church with us. And at church we sang the song, In Christ Alone. And you know the line we, we sang, Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. My friend said in his church, they changed the words to, The love of God was satisfied. Either out of, out of embarrassment and a desire to avoid offense or a tragic ignorance of who God is and who we are, the truth about the gospel is muted in pulpits around the world. 
<coughs> you'll often hear John 3:16, that wonderful verse, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would ha- not perish but have eternal life." And it's right to love that, wor- that verse. But what gives urgency to our proclamation of it? John 3:36, "Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life." Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We get it all wrong, church, when we feel the need to spare God the embarrassment of his divine anger. God is not some capricious or malevolent lowercase g God. The petulant gods of the pantheon pour out wrath like children throw their toys out the cot. God's wrath is different. It's a just execution of his holy anger against the destruction, the wrongness, uh, the destruction of all that is good and right in our rebellion and our sin. The authors of the Bible are not shy about the topic of the wrath of God. They don't pit God's love against his justice. D.A. Carson, in his book, The Gagging of God, writes this, He says, the point that cannot be escaped is that God's wrath is not some minor and easily dismissed peripheral element to the Bible's plotline. Theologically, God's wrath is not inseparable from what it means to be God. Rather, His wrath is a function of His holiness as He confronts sin. But insofar as holiness is an attribute of God, (coughs) And sin is the endemic condition of this world. This side of the fall, divine wrath cannot be ignored or evaded. And Carson says, It is not going too far to say that the Bible would not have a plot line at all if there were no wrath. See, to get the gospel and to understand salvation, we must uphold both God's love and His just wrath. Some err by forgetting His love. Some speak with arrogance and with pride. They forget 1 Thessalonians 1.4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. There was no rebellion on Christ's part in standing between sinners and a holy God. (coughs) Salvation was the Father's plan from before creation. From before He created anything, He chose to set His love on sinners. But the greater problem, I believe, by far in our world is that we have forgotten His justice, that judgment is coming. And one of the greatest signs of lack of love in the church is that we fail to warn the people around us. C.J. Mahaney says this, A greater threat to our lives than the righteous wrath of God hanging over our lives simply does not exist. Are you saved? Are you saved? That question sprung on R.C. Sproul back in 1969 seems to be so archaic in our culture, so old-fashioned, seems to have lost all its meaning, but it's because we've forgotten that we need saving. (coughs) Sproul goes on in his book to answer the question that forms his title, He says, what do we need to be saved from? What every human being needs to be saved from is God. The last thing in the world the impenitent sinner ever wants to meet on the other side of the grave is God. 
But the glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. And how does he do it? He does it through Jesus, our Savior. Jesus who took that end time wrath Upon himself at the cross. To be saved is to know that the wrath that once rested upon me. The wrath that would lead ultimately to my eternal judgment. A wrath that I had no power to do anything about. Has been removed by the blood of the Lamb. You must save and you alone we sing. As I close, I find it significant that Paul in speaking to a suffering church a persecuted church, in order to encourage them, speaks in this way, reminding them of their hope in Jesus, in the the removal of wrath. Why is this such an important comfort for them? Firstly, in a context where burning your old idols comes with danger of great discomfort and opening your mouth to preach the gospel is met with the anger of the world. You need to remember the consequence of your former life and the state that the people are around you, that they are in. You need to feel the weight of the fate of the lost. (coughs) What is it that enables forgiveness and love for those who are persecuting you? It's, It's knowing that God is just, that vengeance is His, and that the wrath that you deserved is taken by the Son of God in your place. In a difficult place, sharing in the fires of Christ's suffering and persecution is a small price to pay for life with Him. This would have been an enabler for faithfulness and for loving witness. This is how we go out into the world. We know that God is just and He will make all things right. Secondly, for a persecuted church, it would bring the joy of the removal of fear. You need not ever, Thessalonians, you need not ever confuse your suffering with the wrath of God. Nothing that happens in your life, child of God, at all is a result of God's wrath or condemnation anymore. Loving discipline, yes, but no longer wrath. Christ has taken it away, and in its place there is now only the promise of His loving presence. John wrote to persecuted Christians in the book of Revelation. And he says this in Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. HBC, how are we living our lives? Are we living in the light of that day? Are we waiting in eagerness for the coming of the Son from heaven, the one who saves us from the wrath to come? May we never give up turning away from our idols toward the the living and true God. May we hate our sin and love our neighbors, forgiving as we've been forgiven in Christ, preaching what we know, the truth of the gospel. And may we with boldness and urgency trust his power behind that gospel. Let's pray. Dear God, we are grateful, Lord, for your your power on display.
We're grateful for the fact that when we speak the gospel, though frightening at times to speak in the world around us, though offensive as it is to the world around us, we're grateful that we know that you will work in power through the proclamation of it. Help us not to fear. Help us not to cower. Help us not to diminish the truth of the gospel. Help us to acknowledge it with boldness. Lord, we know that we do not deserve salvation. We know that we have been rescued from your wrath by Jesus Christ who saved us. And I pray that you would instill in our hearts as we live our lives a sense of your holiness and our sinfulness, a sense of the, the danger of idolatry. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to do work in our hearts. Help us to think carefully. What are the idols that our hearts create? What is it that causes false worship in our lives? And Lord, I pray that you would purify your church in Jesus' name. Amen.